Happy New Year, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Health Conscious Podcast. I am your host, Jefferson Akers, and on today's episode, Milland and I are joined by Josh Budman. Josh is currently the Vice President of Analytics at NetHealth. NetHealth provides EHR and artificial intelligence solutions to medical specialties spanning the healthcare continuum. Prior to NetHealth, Josh served as the co-founder and chief technology officer at Tissue Analytics. Academically, Josh received both a bachelor's and master's degree in biomedical engineering from Johns Hopkins University. In this episode, we dive deeper into the budding role of artificial intelligence in healthcare and also go over how aspiring entrepreneurs can make a splash in the health IT field. Last but certainly not least, we'd like to thank our listeners for your continued support and we really hope you enjoy this episode. And with that, let's get started. So that's a little about, about Josh. Josh, thank you so much for being with us today. We're excited to learn more about you and your career journey and also net health and everything they have to offer. Thank you so much. Glad to be here, Jefferson. The pleasure is all ours. I'll be getting us kicked off with questions to start. So the medical services, as you know, that NetHealth provides EHR and analytics solutions for can be considered pretty niche. Can you talk about the value proposition from NetHealth's mm-hmm. perspective as far as targeting your solutions at more specialized medical services? Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a great question. And I will say, you know, I think especially when you think about wound care and therapy, which are two of the main specialty or, to, you know, to use your wording, niche, niche areas that NetHealth's products address, while those could potentially be construed as niche, and you know, they are definitely specialty areas in medicine, they do span the continuum of care. And so that's what NetHealth aims to be very, very good at is tackling conditions from a documentation perspective, predictive analytics perspective, that span the full continuum of care. So you know, while they only cover a subset of patients in our health system, they're not actually tackling the entire patient, uh, you know, a diagnosis for every single patient condition or the entire patient chart, for lack of a, a better way to, to put it. Those conditions do allow NetHealth to cover basically every part of the care continuum, especially in the United States. So I think to our company, that's very compelling that we're able to support providers and patients in their healthcare journey, no matter which care environment they're, they're actually in. And that allows us to kind of build software offerings that can tackle a variety of, of different documentation frameworks and a variety of different use cases while allowing us to, to hone in on two very important problems or, or fields within medicine as a, as a or healthcare as an entire field. So hopefully that, that makes sense. Now, that's interesting to hear. So it seems like if I'm hearing you correctly, you're trying to focus more on almost comprehensiveness and that you want to target the services that really expand or are expansive in terms of the care continuum versus something that may have a high number of patients annually in a health system, but it may not be as expansive in terms of spanning the whole care continuum. Exactly right. Exactly right. And the second thing I'll just add to that is... It, it tends to be, especially when we start talking about predictive analytics and, and even developing documentation solutions in general, the, the companies that have built very robust solutions for basically every single condition in healthcare, you know, the very multidisciplinary systems are the large EMRs. 
And I don't think net health intends to compete directly with those companies. For instance, Epic and Cerner, they've, and, and all scripts, the, the, the ones that we're familiar with, they've developed very good ways to document patients at the point of care in the hospital. And, and that has to be, a, those have to be very multidisciplinary systems. We actually are trying to complement those systems by providing both documentation frameworks and analytics frameworks that are very, very specialty driven. Um, and, and we hope to complement the EMRs in areas where they're potentially weaker. And so I think those would be the two reasons why NetHealth has focused historically the, the way that, that they, and, and you know, since we've been acquired, uh, we have. Josh, I kind of want to piggyback off of Jefferson's question here and dive a little bit more into your response. You know, obviously it's now since we're entering the new year here in 2022, I'm definitely curious to know what NetHealth's goals and resolutions are for this year and you know, how they plan on strategically positioning themselves to really compete with some of these other companies that are entering this advanced clinical imaging and diagnostics industry. Obviously, the models are a little bit different, but just want to hear your thoughts. Yeah, uh, another another great question. I think that, you know, the company definitely has specific goals for every targeted clinical area, and the company has eight or nine specific products that we market and sell, some EMR solutions, and some are modular. I think the two focuses of the company, I guess the very highly strategic focuses, are, are twofold. One is to become very good at what we're calling, you know, in potentially a tongue-in-cheek way, but it, I think it's a, a good name for it, the modular delivery strategy. So whereas historically NetHealth has been very, very strong and, and still is very strong at developing to my to my previous answer and to Jefferson's previous question, specialty documentation solutions that are effectively specialty electronic medical record solutions. Th those have those are currently being seen as basically direct competitors with the company, the products of companies, again, like Epic and Cerner. And I think, you know, as, as hospitals and health systems, we, I'm sure that both of you are, are aware, and I've, I've seen a bunch of news stories about it recently, are becoming more and more consolidated. These large EMRs and, and the scope of these EMRs within health systems is only going to increase. And so what NetHealth wants to get very good at is deploying complementary products. And, and we do believe we have that. We have a ton of subject matter expertise in areas where the large EMRs have historically been weaker and are not really intending to, to get better at. A, a perfect example would be, you know, the company that I, I co-founded in, in 2014, Tissue Analytics. We were very, very good at documenting and measuring and using, uh, for uh, documenting and measuring chronic wounds and especially applying machine learning and, and analytics to that problem. And so using current frameworks and integration frameworks like FIRE, Fast Healthcare Interoperability Resource, which I'm sure we'll, we'll discuss, discuss later, allows us to actually be complementary with those larger EMRs. So to, to, you know, one, one, one strategic priority there is that modular delivery strategy where we can be viewed and, and deployed as a complementary product to, to products that had and, and companies that have historically been viewed as competitors. The second one is just with the, the expansion of analytics, we did release our first analytics, embedded analytics features onto the market last year. So we deployed algorithms in one of our solutions. The solution is called NetHealth Wound Care and it's an EMR solution specifically for chronic wounds. 
we use our 20-year-old data set, which has you know, millions and millions of data points in it to develop predictive models for predicting the probability that a wound would heal over time, as well as the probability of amputation. So we did release those into the market generally available last year um, to a, a first small set of clients, some beta clients that grew into uh, full licensed clients. But what we're trying to do is make those more robust and expand our, our messaging and, and improve our delivery around those, as well as start expanding into other clinical areas with our analytics models and, and even operational areas. So whereas those were more clinically natured models, those were specifically helping in clinical ways, we're, we're hoping to provide operational insights. For instance, what's the risk of a patient missing a visit? What's the risk of a patient quitting their, their care cycles? Those are very valuable insights for especially outpatient facilities and more ambulatory care providers. So we're, we're pretty excited to start expanding into those areas. So long answer, the summary is more modular delivery and more expansive analytics offerings. Now, I really like how you touched um, and sort of mentioned this word complementary, uh, because I think that's such an important point when you're considering the overall strategy of the company where you've got all these large, you know, EMR vendors already in the industry that have dominated and, you know, have such a huge market share. And essentially, you're trying to find weaknesses and figure out how you can exactly. complement those and piggyback off of those that's instead of trying way. to yeah. outright compete with those. Exactly. And then the second point that you mentioned, and this is something that I, I, I definitely want to expand on a little bit talked about these, you know, uh, predictive analytics, specifically with chronic wound care. And you mentioned that there's this 20-year-old data set that you kind of, you know, used to essentially develop this predictive analytics framework. And your goal has now, it seems like transitioning from, you know, not just being able to clinically diagnose well using these data sets, but to offer those operational insights. I'm just curious, this is just out of sheer curiosity, because there's companies like, you know, Path AI up in Boston and Metadata, that have used these large data sets, and obviously both are very different companies that do different things. Does NetHealth have any plans at all in the future down the line to sort of use these extensive data sets uh, in clinical trials? Yeah, ex excellent, excellent point. So one thing I will say off the bat um, is that Tissue Analytics, the the company I, you know that I one of that I was one of the co-founders of, and that was acquired by NetHealth in 2020. We've been working with large pharmaceutical companies or, or other companies doing wound care focused clinical trials or even other skin care focused clinical trials. For, for instance, we did some work with Pfizer on a large vitiligo focused clinical trial. Um, it was started near the beginning of, of COVID and they had a need to document some of these patients remotely. So this that type of work, just providing effective patient, even patient focused or remote monitoring solutions in the clinical trial space is an area that we felt we could add value in and, and, and have been doing so for years with the tissue analytics product. And piggybacking off of that, I think that's, we're kind of doubling down on that. We've actually brought on an entire team and infrastructure to deploy, to deploy our, our tissue analytics solution, which is the, the most kind of mobile focused solution that NetHealth currently markets and sells, um, you know, to a broader clinical trials market. And, and we're, we're not limited again to chronic wounds. 
we want to use our analytics functionality uh, to, to broaden our scope to really any skin conditions that need to be documented over time and remotely. I think we have the data set, you know, we, we can use principles, common machine learning principles, such as transfer learning, where we can transfer the knowledge of one data set to potentially another clinical area um, to, to build robustness around skin conditions outside of wound care. Wound care only represents a small subset of all the skin related clinical trials that require some remote documentation. So I'd say that's how we're actually trying to add value in the clinical trial space. And again, the company has doubled down there. In terms of predictive analytics in the clinical trial space, I think that's less of our focus, you know, compared to a company like you mentioned, Path AI or Metadata, um, versus the operational and clinical analytics we're trying to deploy inside of our EMR solutions today, or, or some of the analytics-focused products that the company owns. Got it. It's uh, really exciting to hear your insights on that. I'm definitely curious to see, you know, what this company does in the next couple of years, but uh, thanks for shedding light on that. Sure. Sure. Great question. Josh, next we wanted to shift gears a little bit and focus on the concept of interoperability and taking interoperability at face value. It seems like EHR data should be able to flow seamlessly between healthcare delivery systems, but obviously that's not the case. Right. What would you say are the three biggest impediments to achieving interoperability? And then also, how would you go about resolving those three impediments? Yeah, I think I, I, I would actually take it one step further, Jefferson, and say there's one impediment that's the biggest, and it kind of branches into two smaller ones. So I'll cover the, I guess I'll still achieve the number three, but in a kind of roundabout way, if that, if that makes sense. So the, the biggest impediment is really just the change management that would be required vendor by vendor, health system by health system to consolidate the, the data that is currently being managed such that it can flow between both health systems that may or may not have the same EMR. I think even two health systems that use the EMR have enough complexity trying to interoperate today. Uh, there's just not a great infrastructure for it and the data models and workflows can, can just be so different. So. I think that change management, just to use a two-word answer, is really the issue. I would say that, generally speaking, I don't think there's a business-related, a major business-related reason. This is, this is again, my opinion. It, it might be considered a quote-unquote hot take, but I don't think there's a major business reason that the EMRs out there wouldn't, um, wouldn't want to be able to interoperate with, with one another. You just take Epic and Cerner, for instance, uh, there's not too many cases where a large Epic client transfers and becomes a large Cerner client and vice versa. So I don't think there's too much of a competitive issue with, with creating an infrastructure for interoperability. I think, frankly, those companies are actually trying to bite it off piece by piece. I think there are always efforts in the background that are perhaps not well publicized that are, that are um, taking place as we speak. But I do think in terms of just to use a, an adage, ripping the Band-Aid off, I, the reason I don't think that's possible is because of that change management problem. So that's my one answer. I think that stems from two kind of sub answers. One is just the fact that there are tons of legacy data objects. This is a, I'm going to use my, my wording of, of legacy data objects, and I'll reference it throughout the answer. Currently, we have a framework, and we've had frameworks in in healthcare, especially healthcare IT, for creating a shared data model. 
HL7, health level seven, V2 was the old framework. And now we're obviously transitioning to what's called FHIR, FHIR, the fast healthcare interoperability resource. So what that creates is a shared data model such that, you know, a patient in one system is the same as a patient in another system. And that's definitely helping consolidate data objects, but I just feel like that's such a new standard and there's so much legacy data and so many legacy structures that different EMRs are managing that um, doing, doing uh, transitioning too quickly will, would cause issues. So, and the second part of the change management problem, so the first again being legacy data objects is that again, different health systems and EMRs implement totally uh, different workflows in totally different ways, or, or the same workflow, I guess, in totally different ways is a better way to put it. So you just look at specialty documentation, take a very specific example, the way that, the way that Epic implements the ability to document conditions over time, they use a, a sheet called the, um, just they, they use a, a structure that is totally different from the way that, for instance, Cerner would have would, would implement that over time. You apply that to a clinical condition, let's say cardiology, it'll look completely different to an end user, how they might do cardiology documentation in Epic and Cerner. I have a ton of friends that are that are in the healthcare field as providers, and they often complain a ton and probably for good reason when they have to transition their, their mindset from for instance, Epic Discerner or vice versa. So I think, again, the, to, to summarize that answer, the change management is really the number one reason and, and that can be bifurcated into the legacy data objects and the, just the, the from a user interface and user experience perspective, how different workflows are implemented between different systems today. Got it. That was a point well taken on my part about change management, because when you think of healthcare delivery from an administrative standpoint, a really big impediment to mm -hmm. changes to processes is change management, but not so much from the technical side, more so from the people side, and that you're going to be impacting clinician workflows or administrative workflows, and people can exactly. be resistant to that change. But to your point, it's really interesting to hear how that problem can still persist, even when you're looking at things from a technical standpoint. Exactly right. Exactly right. And the downstream effects would just be, you know, could be catastrophic if, if you tried to do too much at once. Next, I want to shift gears and get um, into artificial intelligence. So net health is obviously pretty bullish in that they're projecting that by 2023, around 75% of healthcare delivery organizations will invest in AI capabilities. And with that being the case in the projection, what are some ways that providers of artificial intelligence solutions can differentiate themselves from their competitors and provide value to this expanding customer base of healthcare delivery facilities? Yeah, I think there's some, I'm, I'm going to cover two mechanisms for this. One would be more of an internal mechanism, just from a, a technical and business standpoint, from the perspective of a, of a company like ours. And the other would be externally. So how can we deliver the solutions in a way that, that, is, that is differentiated? So from an internal perspective, let's just focus on something purely technical. I'm of the belief, and I've said this a bunch in, in past interviews and even in internal communications, that the ability to create pretty solid and robust uh, deep learning models or, or machine learning models, forget deep learning, but just machine learning models in general, is, is fairly commoditized today. I, I would also just 
create the assumption that companies that want to go into this area have access to either a very well curated and robust internal proprietary data set or some publicly available data that allows them to train models that, that uh, perform inference well in their area of focus. So those are just two assumptions I make. Again, that, that the, the company has access to a team that knows how to uh, apply commoditized tools for modeling properly and access to a data set. And of course, that was the starting point for, for NetHealth. I think internally, the, the, then the way to differentiate yourself, but, you know, capability-wise versus other companies would be to have a process end-to-end from all the way from ingestion of the data. So taking the data from your sources, getting them to a, a spot and shaping the data properly so that that data can be accessed in a, in a single unified way by your data scientists and that your data scientists are developing models that can be easily deployed into the product and, and deployed for inference purposes into, into the product. So having that end-to-end full stack pipeline streamlined is really, I think, the way that from a technical perspective, a company can differentiate themselves from another and speeding up that process and making it as robust as possible. Specifically, the reason I say that is because aligning aligning data and getting data into a matrix um, to be able to do machine learning tasks that are, again, commoditized is a fairly easy task, especially now in, in 2022. But aligning humans and especially humans across different functions of your data science or analytics team is extremely challenging. And so the ability for, for data loss or, or noise in your data as a result of just human error, um, and, and the, the, the chance of that is fairly high unless you have a good framework for specifically correcting for that. And so that, that I think, is from a technical perspective, the way that companies can get very good at, at building a, a, an AI ML stack. The second thing is just, frankly, investment from a business perspective and at the executive level. And, you know, that might be oversimplifying or seem to be oversimplifying this, but I'll elaborate. A company like NetHealth, which has not historically been an analytics company, frankly, again, we sold documentation solutions, EMR solutions, and now we're leveraging the data we've collected over the last 20 years to become and, and I believe we're already there, but to continue to transform into a full-fledged analytics company, um, that requires prioritization. So there's a lot of regulatory requirements that are needed to be achieved by an EMR company like NetHealth. And prioritizing those is essential, but beyond those, some trade-offs are actually required to to start building more and more analytics functionality into the software. So there might have to be some roadmap items that aren't analytics focused that get down prioritized at the cost of, of analytics work. And again, because the market is fairly unproven now, again, we, we, do, we are banking on the market growing and, and to quote your number, we are banking on that 75% number coming to fruition, but it just requires some, some risk taking. And so I think if we have that appetite for, for risk and cal- specifically calculated risk at the executive level, and I believe that we do at NetHealth, I'm not sure how, how other companies are performing in that regard, that's the second way to differentiate. So I think those are internally the, the two ways to differentiate yourselves. I think from an external perspective, the most important thing is to deploy your tools in such a way that they fit within clinical workflows. I often say, and this is probably a, 
a use of hyperbole, but that even if we had you had software that cured diseases with a high level of uh, of assuredness, um, providers wouldn't use it unless it fit nicely into their existing workflows. And there's a good reason for that. Providers are busy, especially today. There's a ton of burnout within the healthcare space, and a big part of that is just the level of and the sheer amounts of documentation that care providers have to perform. So if you add insights that don't fit nicely into the workflow, even if that's an extra one or two clicks, um, you could risk that that potentially well-developed and robust insight being thrown by the wayside. So I think companies that are doing this need to be able to embed their predictions and their insights using AI directly inside clinical workflows today. It's not an easy task, but I think that's really a, 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 a kind of a, a minimum viable requirement. Got it. I did have one follow-up question on what you mentioned regarding end-to-end capabilities as a point of differentiation. Is that essentially from the perspective of a vendor of EHR AI solutions, meaning that you should be vertically integrated or is there a different kind of more technical definition of what it means to have end-to-end capabilities? Yeah, I think I, I read a I read a document recently that referenced the term continuous deployment for machine learning, so CD4ML. I just I look at that as kind of you know vertically in- integrated might be a good way to look at it, but basically from the the data source itself all the way through to deployment of your models, your your machine learning models into the product, having a process such that the data point that existed at at the point of ingestion is exactly the same as the data point that is used to train your models and deploy the models for inference. So allowing that to be effectively transferred noiselessly across the pipeline is kind of what I meant by by the the end-to-end, the use of the term end-to-end. Josh, I kind of want to piggyback a little bit off of what we've been discussing and just focus at a high level on some of the young health tech companies that we're in the industry right now. If you had to take a wild guess, how would you really allocate the focus uh, for for these companies? Would it be, you know, making sure that their product is is scalable? Is it, you know, increasing the adoption rates for their end users and clients, which could be health systems and physicians or, you know, these EHR companies? Is it, you know, developing high-end predictive analytic technologies, making sure you've got clean data sets? Is it interoperability, data security? Or is it just maximizing capital uh, from these venture capital private equity firms? What, yeah. what would you say is the focus of these young health tech companies that we're seeing right now? That's a great question. And, and yeah, I, on, the, on the last point, while I definitely don't want to denigrate the value of VC funding because we, we received a ton of it and it was very effective for us, there are definitely other ways to get funding for a, for a venture, especially in healthcare. There's a ton of grants out there for, for that sort of thing. So I would say there's no right answer in terms of how the funding is achieved. Of course, it is it is needed um, to, to be able to to be able to build build the solution out. I think you know I, I like to go back to the way that I, I the way that myself and my co-founder Kevin Keenahan um, started Tissue Analytics, the company that was you know acquired by NetHealth, and that was by identifying a a valuable clinical need. I think. Again, that might sound like an oversimplification, but with all of the fancy tools being discussed today and all the different ways that models can be deployed, and you see all of these large companies like Google and Amazon foraying into healthcare, especially AI applied to healthcare, um, you, you can start to get too caught up in just wanting to build 
very robust ML and then apply that to some solution in healthcare. So again, that implies, you know, you're building a robust ML product and finding a way to apply, apply that. And I come from an engineering background, so I totally understand the allure in that solution. And as an engineer still today, I, I always want to build a, a very scalable, appealing, to, to use a pretty crude term, quote unquote, sexy solution. But I think that that solution only matters as much as the need matters. So actually vetting that clinical need is really where I would start. So, you know, I'm a young company and I think I have something. The first, the, the first few things that I would, I would focus on, and I think we, we did a decent job of this. I, I'm going to give a, a little shout out to the, the program that Kevin and I spun the company out of. It's called the Center for Bioengineering Innovation and Design at, at Johns Hopkins. It's within the biomedical engineering department. The first three months, 12 weeks of that program is, is you come in with no product. You basically rotate through different clinical areas, try to identify an area of clinical need and, and, and specifically a clinical need that can be solved with, you know, a potentially quote unquote sexy engineering solution. But that clinical need is put through the ringer. It's, it's vetted. It's compared to other clinical needs. You ask various stakeholders across the care continuum how important that need is. And so I think that is just validating that and having con convincing validation around specifically that item is probably the most important thing. After you've done that, I think the next thing to explore is really the actual size of the market, the competitive landscape in the market, and, and, um, and, and to see if a solution, if the solution that you're proposing would actually create any type of competitive delta. Um, so, you know, those, those are pretty simple things, but it's super important today when there's all sorts of allure around AI and ML and applying that to clinical areas. It's just important to, to go back to the root of the idea, which is, which is the need itself. And finally, I think, you know, one thing that we could have potentially done better and, and we eventually did maybe six months into starting the company is simply asking people if they would pay for the solution and trying to figure out exactly what they would pay for the solution. A lot of times when you talk to clinicians and they see something that, that looks like it might solve a need, they'll be very excited and, and they'll start to and they'll start to express that excitement. But it there's often a large valley to cross between clinical excitement and actually achieving a transaction change and, a, and an exchange of funds. So vetting those things, I think, are simply by far the, the most important things a young company can do and having good validation around, uh, around those hypotheses. Um, so, so that's where I would start. I think from there, if you look at it, so assuming you've achieved that, just from a purely technical perspective, I would say that uh, building, out, building out the stack so that it's ready to scale is probably the most important thing to do technically. So to use your point, Millen, yeah, I think setting up for scalability is key. I think it's, you know, there's there's all sorts of funny memes out there that talk about how easy it is to do something as with just a single person or two people. But once you start to turn it into a task that is done by an entire team, sure, there's maybe fewer work for every person on uh, average across the individual but the task might actually take longer because of all the coordination required and, and all of the 
potential technical debt that had been established when the company was small. So setting up for scalability, I think, is, is key. Again, once the need market and the simple question of would you pay for this have, have all been vetted. Yeah, this is a really important point that you kind of touched on here because everything always comes back to the first question, question which is, you know, who's going to buy it? Who's going to use it? Is there actually a real demand for this product? And then kind of figuring out, the, you know, how do you scale it? You know, how do you provide operational insights? How do you really develop it and maximize its capabilities? So I want to kind of focus a little bit on the need that you talk about here and put it into the context of the overall health tech industry as a whole, because I think last year, and, and you know, there's, I guess, multiple sources out there that I was sort of seeing, but it seems like just on a broader level, I think there were $51 billion worth of investments in health tech globally. And I think US took roughly about $32 billion out of that. So obviously there's a lot of money being pumped into this industry and there's a lot of various different types of clinical needs that are out there. I guess my question to you is, you know, why are some of these companies that we're seeing with a lot of investments and high valuations not able to meet these clinical needs? And on a, on a much broader level, you know, where do you see this industry heading in the next couple of years? How has the focus, if at all, changed for some of these young health tech companies? Oh yeah, that's that's a great question. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna focus that it's a two-parter, I guess. One is, you know, what kind of prevents some of these companies that might achieve large rounds of funding from actually achieving the solution to the clinical need. And, and two would be, you know, what how I see the field evolving in the future. Did I capture that properly, Milan? Yep, that's right. Cool. So I, I would argue to the first question that potentially the companies that achieve the funding actually hadn't properly crafted the need statement well in the first place. It's a simple, it's this very simple thing to do in, in a vacuum, craft one or two sentences uh, as, to, as to why the, there is a market need for or, or a clinical need for your product, but oftentimes it might be thought of in, in the wrong way. So I think I think that's often just setting up a young company for for potential demise. And I think, you know, when when a young company presents data or a potential solution to investors, especially today when interest rates are so low and VCs and PE firms especially are looking to deploy capital at alarmingly high rates, it's very easy to brush your need by the side and start and at the cost of just talking a ton about uh, the actual technical solution and you know potential users that you might have, so that that having a really good certainty around that need, I think, is is pretty key. But I think beyond that, I would just say that healthcare is super hard. I mean, if you look at there was that uh, there was that that firm that was that Bezos and and Warren Buffett, you know, two of the two of the most well-respected minds of the last probably 30 or 40 years in, in finance and, and tech tried to start a, a healthcare company with them. I believe it was Nassim Taleb at, as, as CEO, essentially focused on, on healthcare. Um, and, and they basically shed that endeavor. Now you look at, you look at Google, they, their CEO recently, the, the head, their Cerner CEO just was formerly the head of, Google Health. Um, Google announced that they basically diverted a lot of their health resources onto the 
the frontline product teams, which could be could be good for for the for their healthcare initiatives. I, I don't know enough to say one way or the other. But frankly, we're finding that there's just a ton of uncertainty around the best way to deploy solutions into the market. These companies have all the resources at their disposal, right? I mean, there's no way someone could convince me that Google or or Buffett or, or Bezos can't solve large technical problems in healthcare. The challenge is, you know, have you crafted that need properly? One to, to go back to my first point, and I think that's way harder than it seems. And two, if you do craft the solution, can you actually get that into users' hands in a meaningful way, such that they'll change either change their workflows or or adopt a new adopt a new workflow, uh, adopt a new technique um, in a field that again is tied to very very high risk. So so changing the way that that people have done things is very very hard to do. So I I would say that 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 tends to be the challenge that young companies face and a perfect perfect example of, of why that's challenging or a perfect perfect case in point case study of why that's challenging is is the work or the the shifts that that bezos buffett and, and google have have had to make and so if you look at companies that have done that well it's the companies that have been doing it for years and years like the epics and cerners of the world that have been around and focused on clinical documentation since the 70s or even if you look at Nuance Dragon, which has been trying to embed themselves in clinical workflows for 20 to 30 years and their device is pervasive across the continuum. So I think as soon as, as, soon as companies divert their attention from, from the act or the task of trying, uh, of putting the clinicians first and, and being empathetic to what clinicians are going through and being empathetic to what they're asking clinicians to do, lots of problems can be, can be caused for, for companies like that. Uh, and, and so I think to come full circle, that's probably what we're seeing taking place with some of the, the tech investments that potentially aren't coming to fruition and returning uh, are producing ROI for their investors. So on the second question for the where I see the healthcare AI market going, I would say that Right now, a lot of predictive analytics solutions and, and even uh, prescriptive analytics solutions are focused on basically reviewing clinical structured data and providing some risk score. I think what's going to happen is you're going to see the FDA create a ton more certainty and, and a lot more concrete regulation around software as a medical device and specifically um, AI MD, so AI as a medical device, you're already seeing some guidances come out that are showing that the FDA is starting to foray more and more into concrete decisions around this area. But I think what's going to happen is you're going to see a lot of what are called de novo submissions. And, and actually my company NetHealth is, do, is in the process of a de novo submission right now for some diagnostics tools. So you're going to see a lot more of these potentially diagnostic or even prescriptive, i.e. recommending best treatments or best, best procedures to, to do on, in certain medical cases. And you're going to see these companies starting to work more and more with regulators. That's, that's my prediction. And I think the FDA has a vested interest in this because the FDA understands the power of, of machine learning algorithms today. So again, my, my, my prediction is that companies will start to work more and more with regulators to start to perform higher and higher risk tasks with AI and ML that hopefully improve clinical care in very meaningful ways. 
Those are some two excellent points that you brought up. And I think it really kind of comes full circle again, like you mentioned with, you know, if you're a young health tech company, it's, it's just really making sure you craft a well-developed need statement, validate it, and then put the clinicians first, because you're ultimately going to be the ones that are going to use this technology to some extent. And so, you know, if, if you don't validate that need statement, if you don't put them at the forefront, you know, you're going to have a lot of issues. And then to the second point you talked about, you know, moving forward, just working very closely with the government uh, as more regulations come out surrounding these diagnostics and prescriptive analytics. Exactly. Um, really good points here. I just want to very quickly and, and, you know, kind of to wrap things up, just put the focus here and pivot on your entrepreneurial journey. Sure. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that process that you underwent from, you know, identifying this very specific need you talk about? to founding and evolving and, and kind of growing tissue analytics to eventually making this decision to kind of have it integrated into net health. I mean, what were some of the challenges that you faced here? Absolutely. I think, so to go back to the initial anecdote I, I mentioned or the initial origin story, Kevin and I spun the company out of the Centers for Bioengineering Innovation and Design. I was actually supposed to go to med school after the program and I ended up deferring and of course, eventually withdrawing to pursue the, the company full time. So that was just, that's just a bit about my personal journey. It was, it was actually when we received VC funding that it convinced me that, you know, this is probably a, there's no better time to pursue this than, than right now. So, so that was the impetus for me. I, I think what we found, what we underestimated is, and I've, I've raised this as a talking point basically throughout, throughout the interview. So I'm sure anyone that, that hears this might get sick of me saying it, but it's that we underestimated just how important it was to integrate our software product into clinical workflows. So again, just to give everyone a little lay of the land on, on what this, our solution does, we created a mobile application and web application that allowed care providers to take pictures of chronic wounds. So a chronic wound is anything like a diabetic ulcer, a pressure ulcer, a wound that doesn't heal for more than, for a wound that doesn't heal in under two months effectively. That's considered a chronic wound and they're very debilitating conditions, but the most problematic part of them is, is that they are very hard to document and because they're hard to document and specifically measure just purely measure from a dimension standpoint, it's very hard to know if treatments are working. So tons and tons of costs are wasted on these conditions because of, to, for lack of a better way to put it, bad data. So our solution required that we collect data that was already being collected today. And since we were collecting data that was already being collected today, we needed to make sure that what we were asking providers to do, since it's effectively, it seems small, but it was effectively a paradigm shift integrated very, very nicely within those existing workflows. And again, we underestimated that. We thought, well, we have very cool, accurate machine learning models that do a very, very good job of measuring the size and composition of these conditions over time. Why the heck wouldn't every care provider out there want to use our solution? And so we developed it. We didn't keep integration with the electronic medical record companies like Epic and Cerner in front of mind. And we saw that, yes, we were able to attract an initial group of early adopters. But beyond that, we were having a very hard time breaking into large, breaking into large health systems with our, with our product or breaking into any practice that relied heavily on their electronic medical record that, that wasn't enough of an early adopter to want to 
spend the extra time using our solution. So I think it was basically in 2017 that we came to this real realization and thankfully the fast healthcare interoperability resource fire became more and more pervasive at that time. And that was basically the impetus along with Meaningful Use 3 for some of these large EMRs to open, open their doors, their quote unquote doors for companies like us to integrate with them. They had effectively been walled off systems previously. So we got very lucky that in 2017, we were able to start integrating with these companies in a, in a standard and streamlined way. And we've continued to pursue this heavily uh, up until today. So again, that, that was the main challenge, I believe, was solving the workflow integration component of it. I think the second challenge was really that, and, and this is something that has been solved, I think, for the last seven or eight years. And again, we got lucky with, with timing. If you trace the success of, of tissue analytics to, to one thing, it would be that, I mean, yes, I, I do think we, we crafted a, a good needs statement, no doubt. And I think our solution solves a, a, a true clinical need. But frankly, we got lucky with some things that happened from a timing perspective. So one of them was that the EMRs started to open their doors to us. The second one was that the field of machine learning and specifically deep machine learning became so much more robust and commoditized since we started the company. When we started in 2014, a lot of these algorithms could only really be deployed by a team of PhDs that had been deploying them for you know, two or three years during their thesis. Whereas along the journey of tissue analytics, let's say 2017, 2018, frameworks came out that made the deployment and development of machine learning models like the, the imaging models we're using much more straightforward for a, a smaller engineering team at, at, our, at our scale and, and funding level. So I think those were two of the challenges that we faced. And thankfully, and thanks to the, the way things evolved over time, we were able to overcome them. I think what made the acquisition and to use your wording integration with NetHealth so compelling to us was that we knew and we knew that NetHealth had a robust data set, especially in wound care for years. And, and we had been trying to partner with NetHealth and I think vice versa for the better, for the, the better amount of five to six years, basically since 2016. And we found that, you know, from a business perspective, the best way to partner was simply to, uh, to perform this merger, this, this acquisition, such that we could all work together, team the engineering resources, team the strategic resources and business resources, and try to tackle the wound care problem and frankly, the overarching analytics problem uh, as, as, one, as one company. And I think that's what, to, to, end, to end my answer to this, that's what keeps me, that's what keeps me waking up in the morning and, and getting super excited to go to my to go to my desk, the, you know, the two minute commute to my desk now, which is the ability to, to tackle analytics at a, a fairly large scale across various problems in, in healthcare with a data set that is very well curated and, and already exists, of course. So I would say that's, that's the reason why we did it and, and I continue to, to be excited about it today. It's been really great to hear some of your insights from your journey, Josh. Just as a final question, what are, if you had to summarize your top three takeaways, you know, what are some pieces of advice that you would give to some of our listeners who are young, you know, budding healthcare entrepreneurs looking to make it into this industry? Yeah. So I think, I think 
people are going to think that I'm the most repetitive person ever when I say at least two of them, but uh, forgive me, forgive me for that, I guess, to the, to the listener. So the number one is basically ensuring that your need statement is well-crafted and, and is vetted. I, I can't overstate that. I think so many companies and, and so many very, very skilled and, and well-respected individuals, to, to use my early examples, have failed because they've tried to craft too broad of a need statement that might work or have historically worked in other areas within the overall industry, but you just can't do that in healthcare. The, the, the caring for one's health is tied to a ton of risk for obvious reasons, probably more risk than any other field. And so if that need statement isn't well-crafted, once you start building things and trying to market them, you're, you're basically set up for failure. So that would be number one. I think number, number two in, in healthcare specifically is to just keep workflow at front of mind at all times. Again, being empathetic to what care providers or whoever your intended use population, um, what their day-to-day is, is, is super important. When you think of a, a care provider in healthcare that has to both care for patients and has just a ton of different documentation requirements through CMS or other regulatory bodies, they aren't going to be super willing to adopt new or different solutions or ways of, of doing things. And so being sensitive to that and developing your crafting your need and then developing your solution with that in mind is, is super key. So again, I think, I think workflow is just is, is number two. And then I think number three, uh, once you've established those first two items is just is just building yourself to scale. I think a lot of companies, us included, and, and this is you know way easier said than done. I, I don't think I'm going to spark a light bulb in anyone's head when I say this, um, is, is just building yourself to scale and keeping scalability at front of mind as you're building the solution. I'm deploying technology as a, as a single person or two to three person team is way way easier in many ways than doing it with a massive team. It's again, really, really easy to, to coordinate software and the deployment of software right from your computer to the cloud, for instance. It's, it's way harder to align humans to do that at, at a large scale on various computers with various cloud environments. So starting to think of how you might scale, of course, while having to meet all of your other obligations, and that's why it's easier said than done, is, is super important. Got it. Thank you so much. And I think that just about wraps up questions from our end. Josh, you have been an incredible guest on our episode and podcast. Oh, thank so you. Far. So Thanks thank so you much. again for your time. And thank you to our listeners for following us up until now. Uh, feel free and you can make sure to stay tuned to our latest episodes on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Thank you so much. Thanks so much.